Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. And I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, September 22nd, 2023. For the weather outlook today, it's supposed to get into the low 70s and will be partly sunny and pleasant. Tonight, the clouds will roll in. It will get down into the high 50s. And unfortunately, the weather outlook for the weekend is rainy both Saturday and Sunday. Windy as well. Highs will be in the mid-60s. Lows will be in the high 50s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's drawing in the midday numbers game, we have numbers 0, 4, 5, and 5. For the evening drawing, the numbers were 0, 7, 2, and 9. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 1, 3, 19, 28, and 30. For Wednesday's Powerball drawing, we have numbers 16, 27, 59, 62, 63, and a Powerball of 23. And finally, for Tuesday's Mega Millions drawing, the numbers were 6, 9, 13, 29, 66, and the extra ball was number 24. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, 40 Years of Service. Volunteers are strength at Cape and Islands Veterans Center by Rashik Tabusa Mujib of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Hyannis. Wilfred Remillard, age 73, comes to the Cape and Islands Veterans Outreach Center every Thursday morning to volunteer at the food pantry. Retired from his role as Harwich Fire Chief in 2007, Remillard started volunteering in the spring. This is a great group of people working here. Ever since I started volunteering, I love working here, said Remillard, who lives in Harwich. He is not alone. Most of the food pantry workers are volunteers. The pantry is open on Thursdays in Hyannis and offers free groceries, canned goods, meat, toiletries, and other necessities for veterans and their families. When the pantry opened a year ago, it was serving 29 families on average. Now we serve almost 150 families a day said Mike Gleason, operations manager for the Outreach Center and a U.S. Army veteran. The pantry is part of the Outreach Center, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year as the only nonprofit veterans outreach center on the Cape and Islands and the largest nonprofit veteran service provider. The center is at 247 Stevens Street, Suite E in Hyannis. The food pantry is at 223 Stevens Street. 40% of the center's funds come from the state and another 30% from grants and donations, including individual donors, make up another 30%. An anniversary event on Tuesday will feature General Joseph F. Dunford, Jr. as the guest speaker. Dunford served as the 19th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the nation's highest-ranking military officer. He served as the principal military advisor from October 1, 2015, to September 30, 2019, to the President, the Secretary of Defense, and the National Security Council. Dunford is retired from the U.S. Marine Corps. 
Local initiatives like these are best equipped to understand the unique requirements of veterans in their specific area, said Dunford in an interview with a Times reporter. The center is familiar with the focus areas of housing, food insecurity, counseling, and outreach programs. I'm a really strong supporter of local initiatives that take care of veterans. The Outreach Center in Hyannis was founded in 1983 by a group of Vietnam veterans who didn't find the services and programs they needed available in the region to successfully transition back to their communities. The anniversary celebration will be held at the Emerald Resort in Hyannis, and all proceeds from the event will be used to fund programs run by the center. Dunford serves as chairman of the board for the Semper Fi Fund and America's Fund, which supports wounded, ill and injured active duty personnel and veterans from all branches of the service. Dunford's brother, retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Michael Dunford, is president of the Hyannis Center's Board of Directors and lives in Dennis. I've known about the center and its initiative for several years now through my brother, said Joseph Dunford. I'm very much looking forward to the anniversary dinner as an opportunity to highlight the great work that the center is doing. America can't be complacent in addressing veterans' needs, Dunford said. Veterans face problems in housing, jobs, and physical and mental health, which must be addressed, he said. The best solution for taking care of our veterans is not public programs, but rather public-private relationships, and the center is a perfect example of the private piece of the commitment that we have to our veterans, he said. The center is a good model for the community as a whole, not just veterans, Dunford said. The Hyannis Center matters, said Willie Williams, age 67, a U.S. Coast Guard veteran. Thank God that they were there, Williams said. He was struggling to find permanent housing in 2021 when he moved to Cape Cod. The center was crucial to help him find housing, as well as connecting him with other resources. Every time I needed help with anything, they were instrumental in finding it, said Williams. They made sure that I have health care. They redirected me where to go, who to go to, and they made that whole transition happen for me. According to Williams, for veterans coming back from overseas war zones, re-entering civilian life is like navigating a whole new world. There are a lot of veterans across the country that are homeless only because they don't know how to get the resources available for them, said Williams. If they knew how to maneuver the system, it could help anyone, and the center does exactly that. Apart from the food pantry, the center in Hyannis has a mobile pantry and home delivery program. The mobile pantry runs in Eastham, Falmouth, Wareham, and Martha's Vineyard. The center this year has partnered with the Island Housing Trust to create the first neighborhood for veterans, 12 rental units on Martha's Vineyard, after Oak Bluff's town officials awarded the project to the two groups in late June. We're also looking for loose solutions to help veterans struggling with homelessness, said James Seymour, the executive director of the Hyannis Center. One of the bigger problems the center launched a year ago was for transportation for veterans who may not be able to drive by themselves. We use third-party vendors like Lyft and other cab companies. The program yielded almost 1,700 rides in the first 12 months, said Seymour. Flexibility is key, he said. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. We assess veteran needs, come up with a comprehensive list of services, and then tailor our responses based on that, he said. We're willing to work for anybody that needs help with anything they ask for.
Straw Poll, Bardstable Conservation Board Poised to OK Wind Cable Plan by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times. While they have yet to vote formally, members of the Barnstable Conservation Commission have indicated that they're prepared to approve a Van Grid Renewables proposal to bring power cables from its Park City Wind Project ashore at Craigville Beach and run them under the Centerville River. Commission Chair Tom Lee conducted a straw poll on the plan during the board's online meeting Tuesday, with members giving it unanimous preliminary support. An unofficial vote is expected no later than October 17th, pending completion of an order of conditions. The panel on September 12th closed a public hearing on the offshore wind developer's proposal and took it under advisement while conditions were drafted. On Tuesday, Lee presented a list of 13 conditions that the board spent an hour discussing. The board decided to extend the advisement period through October 17th in order to further hone the conditions based on the comment from members. The board acknowledged the questions residents have raised, including the project's financial viability, what safeguards are in place if the project falters, and whether it may harm marine life and how it could affect the environment further inland at power substations. Board members repeated previous statements about the limits of their jurisdiction. We need to focus and limit ourselves to what's within our jurisdiction. And given that, I feel this is a project I would approve, said Board Vice Chair Louise Foster. Member John Abodili said residents have aired legitimate concerns, but also stressed we have no legal authority to address many of them. He suggested other boards could consider those concerns. A Vangrid is specifically seeking permits to bring two 275 kV submarine electric transmission cables from its 804 megawatt offshore wind farm ashore at the west end of Craigville Beach by way of horizontal directional drilling, a technique used to bring power cables from the Vineyard Wind Project ashore at Covell Beach. The company is looking to pass the power cables under the beach, then under the Centerville River at 2 Short Beach Road which was purchased the end of June for $430,000, according to town assessing records. Plans call for conveying the cables under the river using micro-tunneling, a trenchless construction technique. After that, the cables would be routed underground about four miles to a proposed substation on Chute Flying Hill Road, then nearly a mile to the existing Eversource substation on Oak Street in West Barnstable. From there, the project would connect with the ISO-NE electrical grid. A van grid has a contract to provide Connecticut with the power Park City Wind will generate. Among the Conservation Commission's draft conditions are limitations on when the company can conduct work. Horizontal directional drilling can't be done between April 1st and August 31st, and microtunneling can't be conducted from mid-May to September 30th. The dates will be firmed up in the final version of the order of conditions. Worries over electromagnetic fields. The board is also looking to require that the cables be tunneled at least 10 feet below the bottom of the river to minimize any electromagnetic fields or EMFs the cables may produce. Other conditions call for pre-construction site meetings compliance with state natural heritage guidelines, and close monitoring of all drilling. 
The condition that got the most discussion Tuesday calls for regular monitoring for excessive EMF levels at specific locations, including on the beach and entry and exit points at the river, for at least three years. Residents are worried about how EMFs could affect people and the river ecosystem at a hearing earlier this month. During that hearing, Chris Long, an expert in exposure and risk management, I'm sorry, risk assessment from Gradient Corporation, which is working with Avangrid, addressed EMF concerns. He said putting the lines 10 feet or deeper underground, as is proposed, would make the effects of the EMF negligible. Further, he said, placing conduits in close proximity to others cancels the magnetic fields. On Tuesday, Conservation Commission member Peter Sampu agreed the board should require EMF monitoring. If at any time it exceeds industry standards, the applicant would be required to submit remediation for conservation approval, he said. Charles McLaughlin, an attorney for the town, suggested requiring regular monitoring for the life of the project, especially considering how rough a marine environment can be. Even if it's unlikely to be a problem, he cited case law that emphasizes planning for the potential for a problem. At the end of the day, the concern from our perspective is you've got to take into consideration what the risk is and we have to mitigate it, he said, and I think that's what you're doing. Board member William Hearn agreed monitoring needs to be included among the conditions. No, we don't think things are going to go sideways, he said, stressing no problems are expected, and the risk is slight, but there should be a process for monitoring and addressing it just in case. Tobacco sellers in Yarmouth may be required to be 2,000 feet apart by Rashik Tabusa Mujib of the Cape Cod Times. Vishal Shukla, the owner of the Station Avenue convenience store in South Yarmouth, has been in business for more than 20 years. As someone who sells tobacco products, Shukla regularly attends Yarmouth Board of Health meetings to keep up with municipal regulations that could affect his business. At Monday's board meeting, the board discussed, but did not act on, a proposed new regulation designed to prevent stores that sell tobacco products from bunching up in a particular area. The draft regulation prohibits new businesses that plan to sell tobacco from locating within 2,000 feet of an existing tobacco seller. This regulation is being discussed to eliminate saturation of tobacco permits in specific geographic areas. It's about geographic spacing, said Yarmouth Health Director Jay Gardner in a phone interview. This is the first time a Cape Cod town has considered such a regulation. It's a density strategy to space out tobacco retailers in a given community, said Bob Collett, director of the Cape Cod Regional Tobacco Control Program. According to Collett, the board could set any distance it wants under the draft regulation. According to Gardner, the goal is not to have one store selling tobacco and another selling it two doors down. The Yarmouth Board of Health hasn't looked at the tobacco rating regulations since 2018, so it was a timely discussion for the board, and this is just part of several regulations the board is looking into, said Gardner. Yarmouth is known for instituting strict tobacco regulations. Together with Mashpee and Edgartown, Yarmouth has the toughest tobacco laws of any town on the Cape and Islands. In 2014, the town adopted the ban on the sale of flavored tobacco. 
It also prohibits the sale of tobacco products in pharmacies and has capped the number of tobacco licenses available for retail stores. Yarmouth also increased the minimum age for purchasing tobacco products to 21 several years before the state adopted the change. According to Collett, the Yarmouth Health Board has been very progressive and aggressive in its approach to tobacco sales. Tobacco is still the number one cause of illness and death in the United States, and the board is doing their due diligence to try to protect the public, said Collett. Shukla is satisfied with the town's regulations regarding tobacco sales. The board members are thinking about the health aspect, and the board puts the rules and regulations based on that concern, he said. As long as the board keeps businesses in the loop when preparing its regulations, Shukla believes retailers should comply. Whatever decision they make, they know better. They know what they're doing. And as long as they let us participate in the meeting and look over the plans and then finalize everything, everyone should be okay with it, he said. Shukla believes in the uniformity of regulations on the Cape. If one town has a certain regulation, another town doesn't, it would definitely hurt the businesses, he said. If they do everything at the same time, that would be more helpful to all the retailers. The board plans to further discuss the regulations. U.S. to allow Venezuelans in country to work legally. Hundreds of thousands of migrants granted temporary permits by Rebecca Santana and Elliot Spaget of the Associated Press. Dateline, Washington. The Biden administration says it's granting temporary legal status to hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans who are already in the country, quickly making them eligible to work as it grapples with growing numbers of people fleeing the South American country and elsewhere to arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border. The move, along with promises to accelerate work permits for many migrants, may appease Democratic leaders who have pressured the White House to do more to aid asylum seekers, while also providing grist for Republicans who say that President Joe Biden has been too lax on immigrants. The Homeland Security Department plans to grant temporary protected status to an estimated 472,000 Venezuelans who arrived in the country as of July 31st, making it easier for them to get authorization to work in the U.S. That's been a key demand of Democratic mayors and governors who are struggling to care for an increased number of migrants in their care. That's in addition to about 242,700 Venezuelans who already qualified for temporary status before Wednesday's announcement. The protection for Venezuelans are significant because they account for such a large number of the migrants who have been arriving in the country in recent years. Venezuela plunged into a political, economic, and humanitarian crisis over the last decade, pushing at least 7.3 million people to migrate and making food and other necessities unaffordable for those who remain. The vast majority who fled settled in neighboring countries in Latin America, but many began coming to the United States in the last three years through the notoriously dangerous Darien Gap, a stretch of jungle in Panama. Venezuelans who arrive in the U.S. after July 31st will not be eligible for the protection. Those who are now eligible have to apply to get it. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas granted the expansion and an 18-month extension for those who already have temporary status, due to Venezuela's increased instability and lack of safety due to the enduring humanitarian, security, 
political and environmental conditions, the department said in a statement. The administration said it would accelerate work authorizations for people who have arrived in the country since January through a mobile app for appointments at land crossings with Mexico, called CBP-1, or through parole granted to Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans who have financial sponsors and arrive in an airport. It will aim to give them work permits within 30 days, compared with about 90 days currently. The promise of accelerated work permits does not apply to people who cross the border illegally and seek asylum, who, by law, must wait for six months to receive work permits. Mayors and governors have been clamoring for Biden to figure out a way to get newly arrived migrants to be able to work legally so they can support themselves. Democratic officials in New York, Massachusetts, Chicago, and elsewhere have complained about the strain that newly arrived migrants are putting on their resources, especially in New York, where the government is required to provide housing for anyone who needs it. The city is currently paying to house about 60,000 newly arrived migrants. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said in a statement late Wednesday that she was grateful the federal government has acted so speedily to grant one of our top priorities, temporary protected status to Venezuelan asylum seekers and migrants who have already arrived in this country. The city's mayor, Eric Adams, has been especially critical of the Biden administration. But Adams, on Wednesday, praised the decision to grant protections to Venezuelans and thanked the administration for listening to the city's concerns. The number of migrants trying to cross the southern border is rising. That poses a severe challenge for the administration, which has struggled to show it's in control of the border in the face of Republican criticism. The city of Eagle Pass, which borders Mexico along the Rio Grande in southern Texas, announced a state of emergency Wednesday due to a severe undocumented immigrant surge. The administration also said Wednesday it was using Defense Department forces to support Homeland Security staff on the border. Homeland Security already uses about 2,500 National Guard troops to help Customs and Border Protection. In the news release, Homeland Security said up to 800 new active duty troops would also be detailed to the border. They would be used for things like logistics to free up customs officials for more frontline responsibilities. Massachusetts officials hope for more to be done after Venezuelan designation. By Chris Lazinski of the Statehouse News Service. A day after the federal government moved to make nearly half a million Venezuelan nationals temporarily eligible to reside and work in the U.S., the Healy administration said more needs to be done to ease pressure on the Massachusetts emergency shelter system. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security announced Wednesday that it will extend and redesignate temporary protected status, or TPS, for many Venezuelan migrants because of unsafe conditions in the South American nation. About 472,000 Venezuelan nationals will newly become eligible for TPS, the department estimated which will temporarily protect them from removal and provide them with employment authorization. Healy administration officials gave the development a mixed reaction, saying that although they're happy to see action that will help families, it will have a limited impact in Massachusetts because very few of the families in the state's emergency shelters came from Venezuela. A much larger share of people in Massachusetts shelters arrived from Haiti, 
and Governor Maura Healey called for a similar TPS extension for those families. We're grateful to Secretary Mayorkas and his team at the Department of Homeland Security for these new commitments, but more needs to be done. Healy spokesperson Carissa Hand said in a statement, we continue to advocate for additional federal funding, expedited work permits, and extended temporary protected status for Haitian families. About 242,000 people from Venezuela who are in the United States are already covered by TPS, the Biden administration estimated Wednesday. The protections are warranted because of Venezuela's increased instability and lack of safety due to the enduring humanitarian, security, political, and environmental conditions, DHS said. Temporary protected status provides individuals already present in the U.S. with protection from removal when the conditions in their home country prevent their safe return. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said, That's the situation that Venezuelans who arrived here on or before July 31st of this year find themselves in. We're accordingly granting them the protection that the law provides. However, it's critical that Venezuelans understand that those who arrived here after July 31st are not eligible for such protection and instead will be removed when they are found to not have a legal basis to stay. New York's congressional delegation said last week that it wanted DHS to extend TPS for Venezuelans, which represent the largest group of new arrivals in their state, according to the New York Times. Elizabeth Sweet, executive director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, or MIRA, praised the TPS extension as coming at a critical time, but also said the federal government needs to take additional steps to help the Bay State. Finding paths to pair new arrivals with unfilled jobs is also the best and quickest way to address this crisis and boost our economy. While this is good news, and we applaud the Healy-Driscoll administration for their advocacy and support for new arrivals, we must do more to ensure that the thousands of recent arrivals to Massachusetts fleeing political and economic crises have the chance to sustainably provide for their families, Sweet said. The federal government must similarly expand temporary protected status designations for other countries, including Haiti, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, countries from which many arrivals are coming to Massachusetts. Healy, for weeks, has been pleading with the Biden administration for significant action to accelerated processing of work permits, which she says will allow new arrivals to secure the employment they need to leave the shelter system and funding to offset the massive costs states are facing. More than 6,500 families are in the state's emergency shelter system, amid an unprecedented increase in demand. That's about twice as many as in August 2022, and roughly 1,000 more than just one month ago. Between one-third and half of those people are new arrivals from other countries. To qualify for Massachusetts Emergency Assistance Shelter Services, an immigrant must make themselves known to the federal government and acquire consent to stay such as by officially seeking asylum, according to a Healy administration official. Anyone who arrives through an unauthorized point of entry and does not disclose their presence to federal authorities is ineligible for shelter services. Workers at the state's family welcome centers always check an immigrant's status and verify eligibility before connecting them to shelter services, the official said.
As lawmakers weigh another big request from Healy for shelter funding, Healy said Tuesday that the pressure on the shelter system is not sustainable. Right now, this is a situation that was created over time by the federal government. Congress's failure to act on much-needed immigration reform and a federal administration that has been unable to provide us with the funding to support what really is a federal problem, she said. So we as a state are now forced to bear the burden and the responsibility of this. The State Office for Refugees and Immigrants also announced Thursday that it will expand legal aid options available for new arrivals in the state's shelter system, an effort to help more people apply for and acquire the work authorizations that Healy has deemed as crucial. Refugee resettlement agencies will administer the assistance starting with the Refugee Immigrant Assistance Center, Jewish Family Services of Metro West, and the Organization for Immigrant and Refugee Success. By mid-October, eight resettlement agencies will provide legal aid for work authorization, pro se asylum applications, and more across more than 40 temporary emergency shelters. Officials estimated that it will cover more than 70% of shelters that do not have service providers. While we continue to advocate for the federal government to make desperately needed changes to the work authorization program, this program is an important step for us to provide legal assistance that can speed up this process and help put people on the path to get work, support their families, and address our workforce needs, Healy said in a statement. We've reached the halfway point of our program and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Claire A. Dion Racine. Dateline Shrewsbury and South Yarmouth. Claire A. Dion Racine, age 92, most recently of Shrewsbury and formerly South Yarmouth, passed away peacefully in the early hours of Monday, September 18th. A calling hour will be from 9 to 10.30 a.m. on Monday, September 25th at the Britain Shrewsbury Funeral Home on Main Street in Shrewsbury with Mass to follow at 11 a.m. at St. Mary's Church on Main Street in Shrewsbury. For Claire's full obituary, please visit the website of Britain Funeral Homes. John Charles Trenner, Marston's Mills. In fond memory of John Trenner, 1938 to 2023, beloved husband, brother, father, and grandfather, John's life started in England, and his long and successful career with Albany International took him to Albany, New York, Canada, and the Netherlands before retiring on Cape Cod. In retirement, he was an active member of the Osterville Men's Club and acted as treasurer of the Rotary Club of Osterville for many years. He loved listening to classic jazz, especially the Bill McCann Show on WCDB in Albany, watching the Yankees beat the Red Sox, playing golf, bowling, and curling. Always quick-witted with a sharp sense of humor, he loved watching Monty Python and Seinfeld. Donations to the Parkinson's Foundation would be greatly appreciated and can be placed at the following tribute page to John. www.parkinson.org Go to John Trenner. George H. Landers, Sr. Dateline Falmouth. George H. Landers Sr. of Falmouth, beloved husband of the late Joyce Landers Young, passed away peacefully, surrounded by family, on September 15th at the age of 88. 
Born in New Jersey, George summered on Cape Cod and eventually moved to Orleans permanently in 1950, where he met and fell in love with his wife, Joyce. He began his career as a linesman working for Cape and Vineyard, retiring as a line supervisor for Com Electric. In his younger years, he was a call firefighter for the town of Orleans, and after retirement, worked with his son George on their fishing boat, the Two Gs. George was an avid Boston sports fan, especially his beloved Red Sox. Also an outdoor and nature enthusiast throughout his life, he loved his annual hunting trips to Maine with close friends, and he could be found spending time with his dogs, fishing, watching the birds, especially hummingbirds. A homebody, he loved his home and yard. Tending to his flowers and gardens was a favorite pastime. Above all else, Gramps and Papa loved watching his grandchildren, and more recently, great-grandchildren, playing in his pool. He is survived by his children, seven grandchildren, and his 12 great-grandchildren. George was predeceased by his parents, Walter C. and Ruth L. Landers Holmgren, and his brother Carl. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Donations in his name can be made to the Jimmy Fund, or Cape Cod Healthcare Foundation. For online guestbook and directions, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Marie Patricia Zarnetsky, Dateline Born. Marie Patricia Zarnetsky, age 99 and a half of Born, passed away peacefully on September 18th. She was the beloved wife and high school sweetheart of the late Harold Bud Zarnetsky, to whom she was married for 67 years. Loving mother to seven, grandmother of 11, and great-grandmother of 15. She was the daughter of the late Elizabeth Cordeaux and Joseph A. Chasson of Natick, sister of the late Joseph, Francis, Leo, and George. She was a member of the first graduating class of St. Patrick's School in Natick in 1938. She went on to Our Lady Help of Christians High School in Newton, then attended Framingham State College, but World War II intervened, then marriage, and finally she returned to college at age 42 and graduated as a member of the class of 1967 with a Bachelor of Science in Home Economics Education. She did graduate work at Stonehill College and Bridgewater State University. Marie loved learning. Marie taught home economics at Old Rochester High School for two years and at Hastings Junior High in Fairhaven for 18 years. Upon retirement, she and Bud traveled to Europe, especially their beloved Algarve region of Portugal and all over the U.S. She had a very deep love of music and served for over 30 years as an organist at St. John the Evangelist Church in Pocasset. She and Bud volunteered with St. John's Bingo, where she was entrance cashier for many years. An accomplished seamstress, Marie was a costumer for the Bourne Players, and in later years a member of the quilting group of Buzzards Bay. Marie's love of chemistry showed in her baked goods, especially her Christmas braided breads and a not anadama bread, which were sought after by family and friends. Her playtime was creating delicacies in the kitchen. Visitation will be held on Wednesday, September 27th from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. at Chapman Funerals and Cremations on West Falmouth Highway in West Falmouth. A mass of Christian burial will follow at 10 a.m. at St. John the Evangelist in Pocasset on Shore Road. 
private interment. In lieu of flowers, donations may be sent to the American Cancer Society on South Huntington Avenue in Boston. This is ACS Hope Lodge, which both Patty and Jerry have used during their cancer treatment, or to the charity of your choice. For online guestbook and directions, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. New Health Center Grants Have Climate Focus by Michael Norton of the Statehouse News Service. Following a competitive process, the state has awarded $5 million grants to community health centers on Cape Cod and in Brockton, East Boston, and Lawrence, with the funds intended to fuel capital projects that address the intersection between climate change and a person's health. Brockton Neighborhood Health Center plans to use its grant to expand a harm reduction clinic, vision and adult primary care services, and to replace heat pumps in a health center with more energy efficient models, according to the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. Community Health Center of Cape Cod plans to open a new LEED certified location, while East Boston Neighborhood Health Center plans to include solar panels and rainwater capture in its expansion and solar panels and storage at the Lawrence facility are geared toward clean energy. Our administration is committed to making sure that people can get high quality health care where and when they need it, Governor Maura Healey said in a statement. These grants are only the beginning of our efforts to ensure that community health centers have the support they need to continue to be at the forefront of addressing the interconnection of climate change and health outcomes. Community health centers in Massachusetts provide care to more than 1 million residents, often in underserved communities, and the grants are funded through the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Is He Setting Up His Partner to Be Their Baby's Primary Caregiver? Dear Carolyn, my partner and I are expecting our first child, and while we agree in theory that we want to do everything 50-50, I'm worried that we're already establishing a pattern that could lock me into the role of primary caregiver. We have different approaches. I'm researching different birth options, plus various debates about sleep training, feeding schedules, etc. Whereas his perspective is that we'll be taking a birth course and a newborn care course in the next few months, and that we don't need any additional preparation. I'm also the one carrying the kid, by the way. I don't think his approach is unreasonable, but I'm still left feeling that I'm doing way more work and prep than he is, and that this will inevitably lead me to being the expert, unless I stop doing extra prep to match his level, which doesn't seem fair either. I've tried to bring this up with him. We usually communicate well, but I struggle to articulate my concerns without just accusing him of not doing enough. How can we parent equally with these very different approaches? Signed, Meeting in the Middle. Dear Meeting in the Middle, Our ancestors didn't learn to be parents from the happiest baby in the cave. It's absolutely valid to go into parenthood intending to learn on the job, and your partner is engaged well beyond that already for having enrolled in those two courses with you. If he has a history of copying off your homework, then that does make a case for a serious conversation that clears up your roles preemptively. Even then, though, I wouldn't suggest you split the reading assignments 50-50. Nothing, and I mean nothing, on the list of parental responsibilities breaks into perfect halves. Instead, I'd urge you to allocate responsibilities based on your natures. You're the worrier and the reader, so you read. 
He's the, we've got this guy, so he lives in the chore moment. Laundry, dinner prep, being calm, whatever. There's enough work for four adults, so you and he can certainly find enough to put in his column to balance out your gathering of written expertise or other planning or other preemptive anxiety management. If he doesn't have a history of letting the big stuff devolve to you, then inhale, exhale, and trust. Or go one further and coast on some of his expertise. Beyond the basics, you can't know what kind of partner your child, what kind of parent your child will need until your child gets here. In his belief that the basics are enough, your partner could wind up being the better prepared of the two of you for meeting the unique needs of your child. Self-confidence and flexibility are not just fancy job titles for slacking. This is all just speculation, obviously, but so is your entire predicament, which means you have room and time to try seeing your partner and your partnership through different lenses. Instead of 50-50 co-parents, will you work better as 100-100 co-parents, where you both give all you've got at what each of you does best? Articulating that might yield better results. O'Neill's Kitchen is New Neighborhood Place on Route 151 in Mashpee by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Mashpee. Over a decade, Mark Lawrence hired O'Neill Reed not one, not two, but three times for different restaurant jobs on Cape Cod. Each time the breakfast and banquet cook brought along his recipe for homemade corned beef hash. Now, Lawrence goes to Reed's place, called O'Neill's Kitchen, to get his breakfast of hash and poached eggs. The dream was always to have his own business, said Lawrence, now owner of Polar Cave Ice Cream Parlor in Mashpee. He always took it very seriously, always worked like it was his own place. Now, it is his own place. At 440 Nathan Ellis Highway, or Route 151, a small sign underneath a bigger sign advertising blinds, marks the home of O'Neill's Kitchen, where breakfast and lunch are served daily from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. or 1 p.m. on Sundays. We have a lot of breakfast regulars, Reed said. I'm trying to promote lunch more. He hopes to add some foods from his native Jamaica, jerk chicken, spicy rice and peas, and more, once he can find space in the small two-person kitchen. O'Neill's Kitchen is an unassuming place, and you might drive by without noticing it, but that would be a mistake. The cheery little restaurant is not only a good neighborhood place for a bite, but is an American dream come true for Reed, who learned to cook in Jamaica and first came to the United States for summer work 20 years ago. He was the one who allowed us to get out of the building because we knew he was there and in charge, said Ann Farrow, who, with her husband Mark, owned the former Mills Restaurant in Marston's Mills, now the Fig Tree Cafe, where Reed worked for nearly a decade. He was never late, would never not show up, she said. Mark Farrow added, breakfast cooks were notorious for getting the Michelob flu, and you would dread the ringing phone at three in the morning, but O'Neill was always there. Reed said, when I'm working, I represent myself, my family, and my country. In addition to former employers who sing his praises, customers Reed has cooked for over the years have found their way to O'Neill's kitchen. When Reed took over the former Laura's Home Cooking, he kept all of the staff, including longtime baker Tracy Sepik, 
who makes pastries and huge loaves of sweetbread, including apple spice and maple nut, for $12 each. Reed originally thought his first place would be a bakery, but years of breakfast cook experience put him in the right spot to take over when the Mashpee space became available. In addition to the 50 pounds of corned beef he makes from scratch once or twice a week, the pans of apple crisp he cooks to serve as dessert or on French toast, and the barrage of home fries, eggs, and pancakes, Reed makes sure to take a quick spin around the restaurant to greet guests with his beaming smile. He could do 300 meals on his own, Lawrence said. He had someone help him plate, but he would do all the cooking. He is in perpetual motion in the kitchen, Ann Farrow said, adding that he makes it look easy. When Reed worked at the mills, Mark Farrow said he would always say, no stress in the building, Reed said of his in-control demeanor. The Lord has been good to me, and the Lord is not going to leave me. I have a strong faith. Pilgrimage for People Who Love Live Music, The Washashore Fest Returns, by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Provincetown's Washashore Festival is back and bigger than ever, boasting the love child of Elton John and David Bowie, Jake Wesley Rogers as the festival headliner, and Tony Award winner John Cameron Mitchell as MC for the weekend. Produced by Provincetown Brewing Company, The Crown and Anchor, and Tangle Made Productions, this year's Washashore Festival takes place over two days, October 7th and 8th, as opposed to the standard three, as the festival hopes to display a new version of itself. We're trying to show a different side and what we can do, said Eric Borg, co-owner of Provincetown Brewing Company. Then from there, hopefully, grow it into our goal, which is this sort of immersive town-wide affair that really gets everyone in on the act in whatever capacity they want. What is the Washashore Festival? The Washashore Festival started as an idea between Borg, co-owner Chris Hartley, and then brewery partner Trevor Pittenger in 2019, shortly after Provincetown Brewing Company opened. The trio wanted to create a queer music festival that showcased rising talent amid the backdrop of Provincetown. We really wanted to develop this festival that was sort of like a South by Southwest style thing for Provincetown, Borg said. We wanted it to be immersive, multi-venue, a place where Provincetown is kind of the playground and there are shows in different places throughout town. It's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure. Now the festival is owned and produced by Borg, Pittenger, Hartley, Jonathan Hawkins of Crown and & Anchor, and Aaron Clayton. And for their third year, Borg hopes it supersedes those before. We want queer artists on stage, and we want it to be a cohesive, really communal expression of creativity on stage and with the audience members, Borg said. We're just really excited about where the festival is going this year, with the quality of the talent and the staging. We hope that we can draw as many people from Cape Cod as possible, because we want this to be sort of a pilgrimage for people who love live music. When it comes to selecting performers, Borg said it's all about showcasing talented artists across all genres. We want to show the widest breadth possible of creative performance on stage, he said. We're trying to bring in different types of musicians and performers that maybe some people haven't heard of or wouldn't be exposed to, that they can become a fan of and exposed to through the Washashore Festival. As the first queer music festival in Provincetown and on Cape Cod, 
Borg and his fellow producers wanted Washashore to be intentional about displaying Provincetown as a place for queer creativity. Provincetown is this queer haven, has been for a long time, and we really wanted to reinforce this sort of renewed Provincetown reputation as the place you go to to be exposed to queer creative expression, Borg said. We see this as sort of continuing a legacy, but also modernizing it and bringing in more people under the umbrella to be part of it. We want to be inclusive, more inclusive than Provincetown has been in the past. It's not just queer people, but it's for people who really want to celebrate and share in creative expression. Go big, not home, seems to be the motto for this year's festival. A Tony Award winner as MC, a headliner Elton John described as a resemblance of his younger self and a night at town hall, it's all going on this year. John Cameron Mitchell, who you may know from the Hedwig and the Angry Inch, both the pre-Broadway show and the 2001 film, will be your MC, leading audiences through all the fun to be had. He's going to sing some songs and be a constant present on stage as we go through the weekend, Borg said. On Saturday, the festival kicks off at 7.30 p.m. at the Crown and Anchor with the second annual Net Gala, followed by performances from Boyfriend, a rap cabaret musician based in New Orleans, and Drizzy Bravo. The night ends with a 10 p.m. of a Provincetown version of Mitchell's monthly Mattachine Party, named after the Mattachine Society. On Sunday, October 8th, Washashore takes over Town Hall for the first time in the festival's history. DJ Andrew Lennox and Jao Santos will get you in a party mood with an original set at 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., Korean-American synth-pop guitarist Supernova returns to Washashore for the second year in a row. Then at 9 p.m., it's time for the big event as Bowie John Lovechild, Jake Wesley Rogers, takes the stage. He's this really incredible, rising kind of pop singer-songwriter who's sort of like the love child of Elton John and David Bowie, Borg said. In fact, Elton John himself has said, you can describe him as reminiscent of a young Elton John, so it's pretty cool that we got him. We're really excited to bring somebody who's on the rise to Provincetown. Babe and Bois will close the festival with their clam jam after party at the Crown and Anchor at 10 p.m. Tickets for this year's Washashore Festival range from $65 to $200 plus fees depending on what you buy. Saturday's event ticket is $65. For Sunday's Town Hall concert, tickets are $70 to $110. A festival pass is $135 and a VIP festival pass is $200. Tickets can be purchased online at the Washashore Festival website. And the event is for ages 21 plus, so keep that in mind before you buy. Also, bring your ID to get your wristband. Cape Cod's Oktoberfest celebrations going on for another month by Frankie Rowley of Cape Cod Times. Get out your lederhosen and dirndls, Oktoberfest season is upon us. While the official start to the two-week-long festival was September 16th, and we hope you caught our best bets from last week that featured Cape Cod Beer's Oktoberfest celebration. Oktoberfest doesn't end until the first Sunday in October, with some celebrations on Cape going past then, so you've still got time to celebrate. From upper to lower, there's an Oktoberfest happening in every section of the Cape. It goes without saying, but if your nearest Oktoberfest is a bit of a drive away and you plan on drinking, be sure to have a safe way of getting home.
Here are some of the Oktoberfest celebrations happening on the Cape that you won't want to miss. Where to celebrate Oktoberfest on Cape Cod, get a celebratory beer on tap at Father's Kitchen and Tap House in East Sandwich. Advertised as the best festival ever, Father's Kitchen and Tap House is throwing a three-day-long celebration for Oktoberfest, September 28th to 30th. Stop by for some craft beer and cocktails, live music, and a merchandise sale on September 30th. Father's Kitchen and Tap House is located on Route 6A in East Sandwich. The event runs from Thursday, September 28th to Saturday the 30th, and Father's is open from 4 to 11 Thursdays, 12 to 11 Fridays and Saturdays, and their Facebook ad says Oktoberfest is over at 10 p.m. on September 30th. Have a, have a family fun Oktoberfest in Mashpee. The town of Mashpee's annual Oktoberfest celebration takes place on September 30th at the Mashpee Village Green in Mashpee Commons. The event kicks off at 10 a.m. and ends at 4. Live entertainment, including a performance from the Vagabonds and dance demonstrations by the Haley School of Irish Step Dance and the New England Ballet Theater Company, a keg toss, and children's activities will take place throughout the day. In Oktoberfest fashion, a beer garden will be providing brews throughout the day. The green at Mashpee Commons is on Steeple Street. Attendance is free for Oktoberfest. Enjoy an Oktoberfest tasting at the Cape Cod Museum of Art in Dennis. The Cape Cod Museum of Art is holding its third Oktoberfest this year on October 14th. Local breweries and restaurants will host beer and food tastings. Ticket holders receive five beer tasting tickets and six food tasting tickets. Attendees can vote on their favorite food and beer selections, and the winners will receive trophies at the end of the event. Attendees will receive a full pint of beer from the winner as well. Outside of tastings, live Bavarian music from the Signature Brass Band, games, raffles, and museum tours will also be going on. Bratwurst Bites, ice cream, and wine will be available as well. Tickets are on sale now at the museum's website and cost $45 for members and $50 for the general public. The event starts at 3 and ends at 7 and the museum is located on Hope Lane in Dennis. Get in a last Oktoberfest hurrah at Kate Gould Park and Chatham Town Hall in Chatham. Chatham's Oktoberfest takes place on October 21st in Kate Gould Park and at Town Hall. Of course, there'll be a beer garden doling out pints with other vendors at the festival too. Live music and kids games will be going on to keep everyone entertained throughout the day. More information about the festival is to come, so keep an eye on the Chamber's website for updates. Gates open at 10.30. The festival starts at 11 and ends at 4.30. Chatham Town Hall is on Main Street, and Kate Gould Park is on Chatham Bars Avenue. Oktoberfest at Pelham House Resort in Dennis. Round out the season from noon to 6 p.m. on October 22nd at the Pelham House Resort on C Street in Dennis. The third annual Pelham Oktoberfest is a Sunday fun day for all ages, filled with German delicacies, including house-made jumbo pretzels and apple cider donuts, lawn games, fall activities, and live entertainment all day long, 
starting off with Ted Wyman, followed by Half a Mind Band. Tickets are $35 and are available through Eventbrite. Visit the Pelham Resorts website for a link. For adults, all-day admission includes a customized glass stein filled with a beer of your choice and a jumbo house-made pretzel. And for kids, everything needed for pumpkin painting on the lawn. Here are a few other activities going on on the Cape in the coming days. Enjoy a great day at the Gateway in Hyannis. In Hyannis, Great Day at the Gateway is honoring the military and pushing forth the spirit of flight through a day-long event at Cape Cod Gateway Airport on September 23rd. Four color guards will kick off the day's events as military and aviation meet to create a gate day at the Gateway. For some aviation fun, a few lucky kids, aged 8 to 17, will join the Young Eagles on a free 15 to 20 minute flight going through the steps of a standard flight pattern. The event requires pre-registration, so join the waitlist to see if any spots open. Skydive demonstrations, flight simulators, aviation-themed kids' theater, and other aviation-focused activities will be part of the day. Military drill performances and a speech by U.S. Coast Guard Captain Rob Potter of Air Station Cape Cod will take place and military aircraft will be on display alongside civilian aircraft. Live music from the company B's and column Pipes and Drum will be playing throughout the day, and vendors such as Veterans Lunchbox and Brews and Chips will be on site, serving up drinks and dishes all day. Great Day at the Gateway is free to attend and has free parking. It will take place at the airport in Hyannis from 11 to 4 on Saturday, September 23rd. Jump from porch to porch during North Falmouth's Porch Fest. The North Falmouth Porch Fest, presented by the North Falmouth Village Association, is set to take place from 1 to 5 on Saturday, September 23rd, with 16 artists performing on porches and lawns across North Falmouth. Stop by to catch hour-long porch performances from artists such as Grasshopper Green, Puffy Elvis, and 28 East on one of five stages. 289 Old Main Road, 262 Old Main, 232 Old Main, 194 Old Main, and 155 Old Main. Attendance is free. Parking is available at the Shining Sea Bikeway, Nye Park, and at the North Falmouth Congregational Church with an overflow lot at North Falmouth Elementary School. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.